Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Hartman Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode, what episode is this? Episode 81 of the podcast. So, my God, 81. Um, yeah, so we're not a very new podcast anymore. So, uh, But for you first-time listeners out there who haven't tuned into the podcast yet, uh, basically what we do on the podcast is I invite an author on to discuss a uh, book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published and uh, something on a topic I think uh, uh, you guys out there would like to hear a discussion about. And then hopefully at the uh, end of the podcast or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go out and uh, purchase the book for yourself and uh, give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And again, uh, my apologies to everybody uh, listening in my voice uh, a little nasally, and I'm still a little sick. If you guys have been listening to the last couple podcasts, still a little under the weather. Uh, so like I said, I'm going to try to keep my microphone muted as much as possible so I'm not uh, coughing in your ears or anything like that. So... Uh, just a heads up there. But anyway, enough of that stuff. My uh, guest today is Dr. Penelope J. Corfield. And Dr. Corfield is uh, Emeritus Professor of History at Royal Holloway, London University, and President of the International Society for 18th Century Studies. Her books include Time and the Shape of History and Power and the Professions in Britain, 1700 to 1850. And her latest book is The Georgians, The Deeds and Misdeeds of 18th Century Britain, which was published back in February by Yale University Press and is the book we will be discussing today. So, Dr. Corfield, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. A pleasure to be here, and hello, everybody. Okay. So, uh, the Georgians, uh, the deeds and misdeeds of 18th century Britain, what, uh, what made you want to write uh, this book? What was the genesis of it? You seem to have been um, living, sleeping, eating, breathing uh, Georgian culture uh, for a while, it's a very informative uh, uh, book, chock full of uh, interesting um, uh, nuggets and tidbits about uh, about uh, life in Georgian society. Uh, so, so yeah, what uh, what brought you, what got you interested in, in that time period, and what made you want to write this book? Mm, well, that's interesting, you know, because in my younger days, in my school and university. I hardly did anything on the 18th century at all. It was really crowded out by the Tudors and Stuarts and modern times. And I just got curious. This is some time ago, but I just got curious when starting my research that I really would like to find out about this period. And when I started, not only there were so many big issues, which I know we'll be coming on to discuss, to confront, but also it's a period with remarkable documentations when literacy is taking off and so there's enormous documentation for far greater levels of society, as it were, than there are for earlier periods. So, you know, I've just found so much to read and enjoy. It's got a wonderful classic literature anyway, but there was, there was so much more. And so when I was writing the book, which was is the fruit of a lifetimes of study, uh, I thought I'll put in as many you know, stories about individuals and examples to show the sort of thing I mean. And there's lots of really surprising ones. And uh, how long did it take you to, to write the book? It took me, it took me several years. <laughs> uh, I had a longer first draft I took to the publisher triumphantly said well it is a bit long and you know, let's mm. publish it in two volumes. And they said no way. <laughs> and I also had some 
reader's response, you know, the anonymous readers. And mm. it's one of my dictum, the anonymous reader is your best friend lurking in disguise. <laughs> and it often is in well disguised because anonymous readers can be quite rude. And one of mine was actually <laughs> very rude. But nonetheless, if you put together all their contributions and it was like a, i didn't agree with them all but it was like a sort of shower of cold water so i had mm. this long draft then i went away very energized and really quite quickly edited it down to the still quite a big book but i edited it down but still keeping in all the stories and examples so i really enjoyed that stage and actually i think if i if i may say so it that does come through because if mm. an author is very bored then the writing tends to be rather bored sure but this is rather interesting because i was i must give everybody my best examples yeah, yeah so for an american audience who's probably for the most part not that familiar with uh, or or deeply familiar with with uh, british history when uh, when we say the georgian era when exactly is the georgian era yes that's absolutely right to check that out yeah. i begin from the 1680s sort of after the civil war and i go right through to the 18 uh, yes to the 1840s 50s so it's a very long 18th century and among academics we tend to call it the long 18th century mm -hmm. but when writing I, I couldn't say every time and all those living and working and traveling to the britain in the long 18th century it was just too long so i decided to go for one noun that's clear and unmistakable the georgians it is a term that comes into use just at the end as George IV, just after his death. So it is a term from at least the end of the period. Uh, the own, And most people in the 18th century would actually know what it means. I don't want to call them something they would never recognize. Mm. But of course, the people in the 1680s and 90s would be completely baffled. Mm. I, I can't really help that. And I've tried to keep my examples firmly in that time frame because i am interested actually one of the things i'm interested in is long deep continuities which fall out of the end of periods you know i don't just look for change i look for continuities but to all the same sort of play fair with my readers i try to get my examples all from within the period i'm talking about so i chose a good long period when you can see some continuities as well as changes okay so um uh, this is the period uh, where the the concept of Britishness, the conceptualization of Britishness, uh, really begins to emerge. How did that How did that uh, consciousness of being uh, British instead of being uh, English or Scottish or Welsh or Irish? Uh, how did that How did that emerge in this period? Ah, well, I can answer that, but I would challenge your wording, actually. Oh, okay. It didn't, it didn't, it, it wasn't really an alternative to being Irish, mm. Scottish, English or Welsh. It's alongside. So the Britishness glides in. We can study how it comes in after the 1707 um, treaty, the act of, uh, the treaty with Scotland, the act of union, which creates the United Kingdom of Great Britain. So Britishness then comes in and they start quite quickly to talk about the British army, the British Navy. But talking about deep continuities, the monarchs are still called the kings and queens of England. Mm. So, you know, the England, Scotland, well, that all coexists. And it's a bit like you could say, you know, you're a New Yorker and an American. Mm -hmm. So you can say you're English and Britain, British. And I have some example of early songs 
that um, mix the two, you know, like um, we jolly jack tars of England will fight for the British flag, or, you know, mixing the two. But gradually there, there comes to be a bit of a distinction and, and British is used especially for for foreign policy and trade and colonial policy. But the other stereotypes, the national stereotypes of the English, the Irish, the Scottish and the Welsh, they continue and they're still a great source of laughter and still a huge literature about it. It's rather fascinating how they they coexist. Yeah. So you have a quote uh, from Horace Walpole, who's the, the Whig politician and I guess man of letters, I guess you'd call him. Um, he called the 18th century in Britain a, the century of crowds. Uh, why, why was that an apt description of, of Britain at that time? Mm, yeah, it's a very good one. I collect people's descriptions of how the century was, and the century of crowds is a good reflection on the fact that the British population, which had been very sluggish and held back by slow to recover from the medieval plague, and was then reattacked by smallpox in the mid a new virulent strain of smallpox in the mid 17th century. The population generally is going up in all corners of the kingdoms, most rapidly in Ireland, but all over. And suddenly you start to get references to, well, yes, crowds, people, migration, people coming into towns, flocking into towns. And actually it's linked with this tremendous period of exploration. Britain's a great exporter of population. So there's the sort of dynamism of a population that had been a bit sluggish and recovering a lot of young people. And that continues right throughout the period. Of course, it brings various social problems as well, but it, a population of lots of young people you know, produces a very lively, active mm. environment. And especially in the towns, the young people especially flock to the towns. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, people heading to and fro. So immigration and emigration uh in Britain and from Britain in the Georgian era. Where were people coming from and where were they headed? Mm-hmm. Far more of m movement in all directions than people habitually think, especially for some reason, people living in Britain tends to feel, feel that they are, we just send people outwards, as it were, but we mm -hmm. never get in. But in fact, in, in all periods, there's considerable movement. But in the 18th century, the long 18th century, Britain is very much a world trading hub. It's, it's the link between continental Europe and North America and with the trading link via Africa. So a lot of people coming in from mainland Europe, the, the French Huguenots, a lot of German migrants, um, Jewish families from all over. We have some from Northern Europe, Italy, France and Spain. So uh, those are the very big ones from Europe, but there's also um, considerable input from Africa, the New World, Caribbean, and then by the later 18th century and early 19th century from India. Mm. So it was far, it was, Britain was far more diverse in this period than people uh, would generally tend to think about or believe. Um, how how, e how easy was assimilation for uh, for immigrants in the in the Britain? It's it's quite difficult to tell overall, but there's clearly much more assimilation 
going on as a routine sort of way. You tend to hear that pick up in letters and diaries when things go wrong. And certainly if you go to very remote rural areas and you look and act very differently, like a Frenchman or an African, they might get um, teased or assaulted or even or even mobbed. But in other places, people just go around, you know, there's not much commentary on it. So it's quite one. One can't make it too Panglossian that it was all too easy mm. because there clearly were tensions, but it, it wasn't all tension. And I give you one example that almost all the named African men that we know, or some via the Caribbean, almost all that we can identify married English women and their children are among the British population to this day. You know, and they don't name themselves as that mm. and they just assimilated, in other words. But it's it's a it's quite difficult to tell overall and some people who made their lives it's generally tended to be the big cities where it was easiest some who were happy there would complain if they went out into the countryside they might be mobbed and attacked but anyway so there's more assimilation going on uh, though every now and then it breaks down and the same with the french and the the german immigrants and and especially if the groups tried to be too separate and different. And in the one of the German churches, actually, there was a stand-up fight from part of the congregation who are British as well as the Germans to whether the sermon should be in <laughs> English or German. But eventually, of course, English prevailed, so they, they tend to assimilate, in other words. Mm. Do we know if it, was, uh, if it was any easier at the time to assimilate into British culture than it was during, say, the Victorian era or the Edwardian era, or even in the you know the the twenty uh, later on in the twentieth century. Do we do we have a sense of uh, things were more open then or less open then, or uh, any sense like that? You know that is a really interesting question. It'd be wonderful to have an index of receptivity, <laughs> as it were, if we could construct that, mm. and that would be quite an interesting long-term project to do. My feeling is that actually in the 18th century, partly because it was this period of expansion, broad optimism, again, not all, because I document those who are not optimistic, it was optimism and youth and traveling the world and gaining colonies and trade, and you know, there's a tremendous sense of optimism. And this was quite a good way of assimilating out of a sense of confidence. I do think the impact of the formal empire, I'm sure we going to talk sometime about the British informal empire in the 18th century, but it was very informal. Mm. Whereas by the time, by the late 19th century, when the monarch has become emperor of India, mind you, not of Britain, but the monarch has become an emperor and the there's a much greater hierarchy of status in India in particular, I think that actually has a slight backwash into Britain. I think it, it, it creates a more hierarchic feeling and I it probably if we could do this long term in index, it would obviously vary with the state of the economy, you know, more tensions when think, in bad times. But I think the late 19th century, I would say, was probably the most hierarchic and the most difficult to crash in, especially to upper class society. Yeah. So you just mentioned the empire. Um, I'm not sure if it's really a, as you said, it's more of an informal empire at this point. Um the development of, of the empire at this time, um, mostly unplanned, correct? I mean, it's just sort of uh, 
fits and starts. Yes. Uh, there wasn't a there wasn't a a, a you know a guide to empire you know step one step two you know step three phase a so that <laughs> no, sort no. of thing. Not yeah. not at all. It was informal, and I've been collecting references for much of the 18th century. They do talk about the British Empire, but almost invariably the early references are to a commercial empire, mm. and, and they mean by empire. Not a formalized government, but what we would say by sway, you know, sway or hegemony or influence. So it's the impact of trade. And some of them are saying quite openly, by the impact of trade, we'll get a much more powerful and impressive empire than any of these you know, decaying old Habsburgs ever had. <laughs> so, so there is a sense, you know, that, that trade is the way forward and colonies. And, and of course, it's not. It's not unplanned entirely in the sense that the state will back the colonies and the traders, and so there are wars and armies and navies all all involved, but there isn't a master plan. And indeed, there were some in, was it 1797, somebody, uh, I think it was Vancouver, took Hawaii for Britain and raised the flag, but nobody told Britain, so it was never, you know, it was never. Yeah, that was a mistake. You guys should have kept that. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I don't know if yeah, you've been but, to Hawaii, but it's very, very nice. I, uh, I, thank I, you, I, thank you for not claiming it. Uh, <laughs> but poor <laughs> communication. Yeah, that's yeah. Why it would be very, very nice. And Hawaii still shows the British flag. Yeah, by the still way, the Union Jack up there in the corner. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. An interesting, uh, the fact, and that you can find the British flag in several f- other flags around the, the globe. So it was a curious sort of empire, informal, but actually that was. It was very much the culture of trial and error, mm. and actually that pleased people a lot. You know, they didn't fuss too much about sort of having it all marked up in red in atlases. They liked maps of trade, though. Mm. Yeah. So, since we're on the the topic of empire, I guess uh, might as well uh, bring up the um, the topic of slavery, uh, since they're you know broadly intertwined. Uh, how should we feel, or how should we judge the Georgians with regard to slavery? I mean, granted, this is the the time when the slave trade is really going to pick up, but at the same time, it's also later on in the same period where um, Britain is going to uh, outlaw the slave trade and start uh, uh, policing <laughs> policing the uh, the Atlantic Ocean and the waters of the world to, to end the slave trade. Um, yeah, how should we judge the Jordans with regard to slavery? What what is the standard we should hold people of the past to when it comes to uh, things like this? Yes, of course that is a very very crucial question, and I'll, I'll divide my answer first of all into what was happening to public opinion, and then I'll discuss mm-hmm. how we should judge, because certainly I think if we took the late 17th century, there'd be pretty well a consensus that. It was okay. Mind you, the trade was quite small scale then, but particularly as it sort of industrialized and was put onto a mass frame, you do start to get very urgent um, campaigns against, especially from the nonconformists and the Quakers, especially led by the Quakers, the principle of the equality of all in the eyes of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And then there's a notorious event in 1781 called the Zong Massacre, when the Zong trade ship it's a slave trading ship and ultimately out of a British port, but on the middle um, leg of the three-way trade to Africa with goods to sell their middle course on with the 
labour force and then coming back with raw materials like cotton and sugar and so forth. And in, in a storm, the crew was told to jettison the live cargo, which they did. I mean, there wasn't a mutiny from the crew. And this you know, caused absolute horror because you know, <laughs> throwing people overseas, no matter what their status, is not, um, it's not cricket. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> or baseball, <laughs> if that's the <laughs> and that so there had been campaigns before, but that episode gave a tremendous sort of moral push to the abolitionists, and they started setting up lots and lots of local societies. Really, very interesting. It was not just a few campaigners, though they were very impressive, but there were local societies, often with women playing a big role just simply on the ground you know this is not the way to treat <laughs> fellow humans yeah. and so by the early 19th century and so far as we can tell because many people of course didn't leave their views but the zeitgeist mood has moved absolutely against the trade and that is why when britain abolished the slave trade it threw its navy into trying to block everybody else i mean the americans were still trading but we, the British Navy tried to stop everyone else. So I think at some point in the late 18th century, there was a big, big sort of moral and political shift. And you know, once the trade was abolished, there was no move to bring it back. It's one of those zeitgeist things. It's like mm -hmm. when you give people the vote, you know, then whatever, however much fuss there is, say, later in giving women the vote, once they've got it, there's no move to take it away from them again. Yeah, you and can't the get same... the toothpaste back in the tube. <laughs> yes. And so... And, and there had been actually moves to tighten up on the slave trade even before it was abolished, like making sure there was a doctor on board and making sure that the slaves weren't, or rather the enslaved Africans weren't packed in too tightly and inhumanely. But the abolitionists, of course, said that was just, you know, trivial, um, trivial sort of cosmetics on a fundamentally morally wrong mm -hmm. trade. And then. Then there's the question of how do we judge that in the long term? And I certainly agree that historians and posterity shouldn't rush around throwing labels you know, wantonly around this or that is evil or wicked or whatever. But I think there are, in terms of global humanity, and now you know, we have a United Nations declaration against international slavery, although alas, it still continues, but there are beginning to be some developed con conventions which are of all humanity. And so I think by those sort of criteria, and without just rushing to judgment, we can say in retrospect with all the participants, this was a world crime and a crime against humanity. And particularly the uprooting of people, not just to, you know, to work as slaves, but from their the, the the terrain they're used to, the languages they're used to, the people they're used to, their names are changed, you know, everything. It's a complete trauma being inflicted inflicted upon peoples, which you know, goes up there with, well, basically a world crime. So I do think we can judge it without meaning that every individual involved in the trade is an evil person. I'm not saying anything like that, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, it is a you know, a, a humanly flawed process which goes on for centuries. But again, some of the people, like the him, Amazing Grace, that he was a slave trader who 
saw the light and you know he says my eyes were blind and now i see so it was a moral issue we're not just imposing moral values on people in the past that they wouldn't understand but some would have said oh well it's you know it's a legal trade which it was until mm. it was outlawed and you know there was the blessings of the church not all the churches but some of the church gave it the blessing so you know while ultimately calling it a grave and serious historically disastrous misdeed um one shouldn't as i say rush to judgment and try and second guess everybody at the time so i'm saying this rather cosmically rather yeah. than directed at every individual in the trade yeah how do you uh what are your thoughts on um i know this has happened quite a bit in the last uh, or last year or the year before uh over on your side of the ocean uh with uh, protesters and rioters uh, wanting to or attempting to uh, pull down statues of people who uh, have the, the most remote connection. <laughs> Just like, you know, someone in their family may have invested in, uh, you know, slave markets or, or slaves or something like that. And uh, using that as, uh, uh, you know, justification or uh, to you know, pull down these statues of these, uh, you know, famous people who have done the the Commonwealth uh, many good things. Uh, how do you feel about that? Or is it, uh, is, well, would you consider that part of, you have this uh, great uh, quote from uh, the historian E.P. Thompson, uh, who talks about the enormous condescension of posterity. Would that, um, would that fit into that or? or um, yes, yeah. uh, we, we shouldn't be condescending to the people in the past or you know, taking easy pot shots at them. And in fact, some of the statues that have been uh, attacked are not necessarily the worst or most vicious people who, you know, personally, and mm. whereas you know, in the slave trade, some of the some of the campaigners could actually find captains and crews who were revoltingly vicious and how they undertook the trade whereas some of the people on the statues were not like that but i on the other hand i do welcome very much a proper conversation in our country about the slave trade and empire you know it was all brushed under the carpet for too long for an interesting reason actually there was liberal support for the empire and as well as conservative support on you know on the grounds that britain was a force for good and in some things like stopping um wife burnings in india it was a force for good but you know that muddles up all sorts of things but so i think it's really good to have these conversations and i'm certainly not against um if local people want is moving you know if you have a proper conversation a rational conversation moving a statue or having a a plaque with an alternate you know a full explanation of the Mm -hmm. social and historical context and some of those have gone into museums where they are very well discussed with you know with sort of all the different cases uh, around but i prefer it to be done by rational debate but and also you know some sense of who are the real villains in the case and are not all equally villainous but i do think it's part of what i'm also arguing that the past and the present interlock and interact you know they're not completely separate things and one of the things we're looking ahead to is how in 
2033, we commemorate the 200th anniversary of the British Act abolishing slavery in the British um, colonies and dependencies. And I think we ought to do that with a full debate of it because it was a good move, but it wasn't fully thought through and the the reparations for the, for the slave owners not investment in the countries where the slaves needed to mm-hmm. remake their lives so i'm i'm very sympathetic to a, a good debate about that and i'm hoping when we get to 2033 we will be discussing that and i hope it will be related to all sorts of programs of um investment in all these places as um if i can just give a plug for one option sure. college Ox, the All Souls discovered a lot of its wealth came from um, plantations in the Caribbean and without, you know, without riots in the street or anything, but they decided on a very um, progressive investment and educational program in the area where their estates were. And, and that seems to me the sort of positive thing done in a positive spirit and welcomed by the people there you know, rather than a sort of top down, either ignoring or sort of patting on the heads. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to try and make 2033 not just well done Wilberforce and the abolitionists, but um, well done all the campaigners from all over and how it could have been done better. I mean, it's still good that it should be done, but it could be done better. Okay. But this is part of what I'm arguing about history. And I don't know whether you liked my little time shift at the end. Yeah, of I was going to ask you about that a little bit later. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, the time shifts... Uh, so, uh, for the listeners out there, it, each uh, each chapter ends with a little section called "Time Shifts," which uh, which links uh, links the Georgian era uh, to our times, just based on the different uh, you know on the different chapters, whatever the topic is for the chapter. What made you decide to to do those uh, time shifts? Well, it was my own idea as to yes. how to do it because I've been. You know, sort of during my teaching, I'm always trying to say to the students, you know, of course, some things about the past are are different, but some partly because of deep continuity. Some of these issues and attitudes run right through. And I don't think we should look at the past and assume it's just like the present. But equally, we shouldn't look at the past and think it's, oh, it's completely separate. And then I began thinking of ways to show the students what I meant, really. So sometimes there are places to see or um there's some I've got a list of um, 18th century plays which are still often performed they're comedies most of the tragedies from the 18th century don't don't read terribly well now but the comedies <laughs> are still very vivacious and effective so um but I've also got songs that are still sung and hymns indeed some of the most famous hymns of amazing grace century. amazing grace is one oh come all you faithful lots of lots of great film um, hymns then so I and I've got um, under the movement of things around the world, as well as the movement of people, I've listed five common plants in Britain that were imported into Britain in the 18th century. And people are staggered when I tell them <laughs> that, I mean, the weeping willow tree, which everyone thinks is so quintessentially English, you know, mm. around a, the village pond in, imported in the 18th century. And wisteria, you know, climbing around every cottage. Uh, the first plant came in in 1816. So we've just had the 200th anniversary of wisteria. Yeah. Anyway, I like to look <laughs> at those cross-time things because it makes people think about time and history in a fresher, different way. Hmm. 
So uh, shifting focus a little bit uh, from the empire, but to, to the political world of the Georgian era, you describe it as an age of uh, emergent constitutionalism. It's a time where uh, politics is becoming increasingly professionalized, uh, where the monarchy is becoming uh, much more uh, ceremonial, uh, and we're also seeing a, a, a normalization day-to-day of rule by by the king's ministers. Talk to us a little bit about the uh, the political world of the Georgians. Again, that's a very, very fascinating aspect of the era in that it has plenty of signs of the old world, but also has got a new world sort of within it. And you see the two sort of struggling together. So the monarch certainly has a big ceremonial role and can through the force of his or her personality or wishes, can certainly influence the ministers, often quite significantly, in that the younger Pitt, for example, was trying for accommodation with Catholic Ireland in the 1790s, and George III wouldn't let Catholic emancipation go through, and things might have been very different had that gone through. But So the king could be a negative break and still is a very important symbol and also court life you know, is, is a very important sort of political area of political discussion, jockeying for place and all the rest. But as well, there is this wider world. And by the way, and there are still a, the old rotten boroughs with where one nobleman has the patronage of the borough and will nominate who becomes the MP. You know, that mm-hmm. that's the sort of thing the 19th century reformers quite frankly opposed. But alongside that, and very, very interestingly, there are a lot of seats that have very wide adult male franchises, not yet women, though by the end, one or two people are proposing that women should have the franchise in a very daring way. But men quite a long way down the social scale and these big constituencies, they're called the open constituencies as opposed to the rotten boroughs, these are having very, very vigorous political lives. I call it proto-democracy. We see the advent of political parties, political campaigning, all the things we're now associated with, party colours, programmes, slogans, songs, crowd demonstrations. Prime Minister, even in the position. Yep. Yep, yep. yep. So there's there's a world of wider debate and the development of some of the constitutionalist norms and there is still the sort of traditional hierarchy alongside but when i say constitutionalism for example the actual culture of voting and it's not only for elections that there are votes but again the principle is each person who is entitled to vote that one vote is equal to any other so a duke and a dustman their vote is the same we have one vote each but it's um, nonconformist churches are voting to decide on their ministers or um, charities are voting to create their board of trustees and banks are voting to set up their trustees. So there's a whole idea of, of, a, of a sort of constitutionalist process. And in fact, it's out of that sort of debate and culture that the American constitution itself comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you read it. Georgian society, the uh, all levels of Georgian society, from the aristocracy to the middle classes to the uh, lower classes, 
there's this prolonged state of flux at all levels of society. Um, but how much social connectedness was there? Uh, what, uh, what was civil society like uh, during this period? Yep, that you like those sort of good questions. <laughs> there's not one simple right, answer. Right, 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 yeah. But there's lots and lots, I think, there's lots and lots of interconnectedness. And I tell you the sort of things that are being shared. I mean, sporting occasions, for a start. There are very big, big public sporting events in this, many of the classic English races, for example, and all these sort of things are being founded in this period. And these sporting events are heavily, not exclusively male, but they're very notable cross class and many of the social areas for the urban promenades and so forth, not the private clubs, but the open areas. But the churches also are cross class. And again, there are variations there, but um, some of the nonconformist churches have quite an impressive social range among the lower orders and quite a number of the intelligentsia and professional classes. And then um, literacy, the spreading of literacy is a bond and actually the spread of numeracy. I put that in the book, which is not much studied, but actually Britain is becoming a very numerate society as well and at literacy um there it's we have plenty of evidence of this that those who could read in the right context would read aloud to the illiterate so the illiterate are not being excluded um say in um coffee houses mind you not so many of the very poor there but um in workplaces if it's quiet work so in a tailor's shop where the the apprentices are sitting sewing away things would be read to them so that there are a lot of factors that are and song of course amply switches across so there's quite a lot of interconnectedness the sort of things that subdivide though are regional accents if they're very very strong and impervious and there's a lot of joking about accents from different eras different areas but people make efforts to try and understand so i i think there's quite a lot of mixing however um one shouldn't in any way imply that hierarchy has gone but i have traced and this is my own original work i have traced the coming in of the new broader looser language of class i know that later became more repressive in in its own way but the old view was a rigid hierarchy called ranks and orders hmm. with everyone from the lowest of the low to the highest all in their own ranks and orders and that is actually falling away as part of the majority discourse as it were and classes gliding in um, and so the number of classes are fewer and broader and just just social flux is the idea that i'm getting over a lot of hmm toing and froing on all the big margins, a lot of little molecules going up and down, although the whole framework has still got an upper class and a lower class. Yeah, this is really the period where we're going to see the emergence of the middle class, or the, the middlecrats, as you call them, yes. and, and the emergence as well of, of the working class and uh, the idea of like a working class consciousness. Yes, the middle class, it, it, the term of middle class comes, first of all, it's the middling sort or the middling... Yeah. Part and then it becomes clarified as the middle class. And there are still some critiques of the middle class as a, as a, as a, 
an area of envy and, and, and greed, looking up to the great but not able to get there. But there's also, I do find this very amusing, and I've got lots of the examples, of, there's an alternative uh, literature of middle class self-praise. And boy, <laughs> they lay it on. You know, this is the perfect place to be. We're not as uh, rich, unhappy and um, competitive as the as the great, but we're, we're not as starving and in want as the poor. But, you know, and we're the most enlightened, the most progressive, the most intelligent. You know, they lay it on. Sure. It's often the professionals that are doing this too, more than the commercial middle class, but it's the professional. And they're growing massively in numbers, lawyers, doctors. Those are the prime two who are there. Well, the clergy, they're all, it's especially the lawyers and, oh, and school teachers. Very So there's this literature of self-praise is giving the middle class enormous confidence. So they are pressing for the vote far ahead of, votes for the workers and when they are enfranchised you know they take to it as the manner born they are not embarrassed by it at all they're delighted yeah uh, well how merit how meritocratic was georgian society I and mean, you know most people when they think of of britain of england they think of the the class hierarchy and uh you know you're sort of in your position um for life and of course that's not you know that's a overstatement but i mean that's uh, sort of how it's viewed. How uh, how meritocratic was uh, was Georgian society? How uh, how easy was it to uh, or hard was it to uh, you know move up the the social ladder? I think partly because it's a period of growth and expansion. It is a period actually when it's relative relatively easier, not totally easy, because there are more jobs opening up and more opportunities and especially people move and there's an enormous amount of mobility which isn't the same as rising but it is at least you, you you're certainly not stuck where you were born um so and, and I, as i was saying in the answer to an earlier question probably there's a little more hierarchy and and and, and sort of stickiness mm -hmm. coming in in the later 19th century so it isn't something that just comes once and then stays but i would say the 18th century is quite a notable period of meritocracy uh, a bit but again not for all and because it, it did produce for those who wanted to rise and fail but you know there's a lot of bitterness and especially well I mean, there were some women who made it to you know well some to very high by marriage but others you know became novelists pundits teachers all sorts of impressive things from poor backgrounds but mm -hmm. i think there were more disappointed women and some of whom were quite bitter that they'd wanted to rise in the world and, and make a mark in the world and hadn't so i would say it was easier for men but um and one of the things i try and collect you know who climbed as it were i mean i don't personally like the rhetoric of top and bottom because that mm. implies one's endorsing but nonetheless if you take that traditional mechanism someone like peg woffington a dublin brick layer's daughter who became the toast of theater land and created a fortune in fact sadly died young but she made an enormous leap mm -hmm. uh, socially and 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 personally so she's one of the greatest but there are all sorts of james cook the adventurer was an agricultural laborer's the explorer was an agricultural labourer's 
son from Yorkshire, and now you know he he's probably the Brit with the the 18th century Brit with the greatest number of places named after him all around the world, including a crater on the moon. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so it's back back to Hawaii. You can actually uh, go scuba diving <laughs> and snorkeling right by where he's uh, where he was killed. So they had the little the James Cook monument uh, or the spot where he yes. was where he fell. Yes, um, so it helps particularly if you find, you know, a, a rising theatre is expanding massively. Mm-hmm. The Navy, if you um, science, if you find, you know, again, Michael Faraday is another one from a very poor background who, he's not so famous, but he's in his own scientific field. He's an absolute sort of top-notch um, person to this day. So yeah, there, there are there are some really remarkable cases. Even though, of course, you've got to set aside that there's also downward social mobility, and there are aspirations that are thwarted. So you have to sort of balance them all out. But I would say it's quite a period for meritocratic advancement. And the other thing that it does bring too is a good set of writings on meritocracy, the case for meritocracy. There's now you know, not just examples of people doing it, but there are people saying it's better to make yourself noble and to be born noble. You know, it's, it's something you've done yourself is more meritorious. And so there's, you know, there's, there's a theory of, of behind it all in this period. Yeah, and most of the, the, the famous people we uh, still recognize throughout history uh, from this period, uh, you know, people who made the mark in uh, the arts or literature or uh, uh, in engineering or architecture or whatever, uh, most of those people were not aristocrats or plutocrats. They were uh, from more of the, the, the middling classes and the lower classes, which is a, um, more of a turn. Obviously, the, the farther back you go in history, pretty much the only people you ever hear about are are the, are the nobles are the uh, uh, royals or you know aristocrats or whatever but um, but uh, the most of the people we remember from this period outside of a political context uh, like I said in the arts and whatnot are uh, they're not they're not aristocrats or plutocrats yeah that's absolutely right and um, I sometimes again not I'm not in my classes now but I sometimes have taken we have some banknotes with your know, Georgian faces on who are they newton jane austen people like that not james cook not um the monarchs but i i would just say though in earlier periods i think all societies whether they have a theory of meritocracy or not actually need some avenues of advancement for mm. ability because out of sheer necessity so armies often will in wars as opposed to in ceremonial peacetime but in wars um, armies will sometimes advance people who know how to fight and win battles. And the other area, of course, the church. The churches have always had some scope for clever people to come forward. So, you know, Woolsey is from a very modest background and you know, anyway, other church leaders. So societies usually have some safety valves, partly because the elite need the skills, as it were, mm-hmm. but also, if, if all clever people, or it's not just cleverness, but able people, are completely thwarted, then then problems can arise. But the 18th century had plenty of avenues, and including going going abroad. You know, there's this movement of people all the time. And one thing we can check, for example, from town listings, you know, if you want an index of 
mobility. You get them in successive years and look at who are listed and which properties. The turnover is fantastic. Mm. Yeah, well, speaking of uh, rising through the church, uh, talk a little bit about the the changing face of a religious worship during this era. And not only uh, religious worship, but... Uh, or uh, or um, irreligion or, or free thinking is starting to be allowed to uh, peek out uh, into the sunlight. So uh, talk about the religious uh, world or <laughs> realm of this world uh, during the period. Yeah, the, there's a great change in both. And they, of course, are related because there is a massive surge in overt free thinking. Quite how much private free thinking had been going on before, we, sure. we don't know. But overtly and free thinking is you know, the nice jolly 18th century term for it was of course it's heresy from <laughs> religious but uh, and you do see among the free thinkers people trying to develop almost like a secular system of morality some of them are trying to say you know we're not just anti the trappings of the church but we want to find ways in which people can find values without needing a religious endorsement but at the same time and when there is, I, I call, and I'm, I'm part of those who argue it's a period of secularization in terms that the church is no longer playing such an important role, for example, in education, administration, local government, etc., etc. No longer so all-powerful in England and Scotland, though Ireland's slightly different. But, sorry, just lost my track for a oh, moment. Oh, no problem. The, the, the effect... Well, oh yes. While I say it is a period of secularization, I don't mean it's the death of religion. People sometimes think they're the same thing, but not at all. It actually galvanizes the religious devotees. You know, they realize that they've got to work. It's no longer just the established church, which can carry on because it's the national church and everyone has to, uh, at least in theory, partake of it so it galvanizes the church and there is a great search for personal inner religious faith it's quite a period of revivalism and of course there are the non-conformist churches are now also coming into the open and they're gaining the methodists the big new biggest of the new um, non-conformist churches as it eventually breaks away from the church of england but there are lots of other smaller ones so there's a lot of religious renewal going on alongside uh, the spread of free, th free thinking, and I call that is a secularized society. So it is not anti-religion necessarily. Some of them were, but it's not necessarily anti-religion. But it's basically the message is pluralism, which remains the case today. You can be very religiously involved if you wish or not. Yeah. So with free thinking coming into the open, uh, we also. I don't know if the two are tied together, but uh, we also see uh, sex and sexuality becoming uh, something that's more openly uh, discussed or openly uh, flaunted, I guess. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, when you think of the, uh, the Georgian period or maybe the, the Regency period or something like that, you think of the, uh, the birth of the Libertine. Uh, you know, women's dresses with the uh, bosoms pushed up and visible, <laughs> uh, highly visible, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, how um, how is sexuality coming uh, and sex coming out into the open? This, yeah. this change in how uh, people are 
thinking about sex, talking about sex, uh, having sex, you know, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it, it is related. It's not solely caused, but it is related to the changing role of the church. The old church courts, which actually, again, survive for quite a long time, but they're then dealing with different sorts of matters. They're not policing people's morality from day to day. And the act of toleration allowing choice in religion also prevents people being sort of closely supervised by one church and the rise of literacy which i've already talked about is allowing all this sort of stuff to be um discussed and made overt in print and so it, it certainly is a sexualization of society i don't call it simply a sexual revolution because that has slightly different connotations and it doesn't just happen just like that but society becomes sexualized and there's an enormous amount of writing and frankness about it for which the georgians are famous and the victorians to some extent are they don't stop doing it but they, there's a sort of an attempt at repression or sort of control of what is said and done now how far actual social life and sexual life was affected by this again it's quite hard to say in detail i'm sure actually all the talk and writing about sex and jokes and bawdy songs and all the rest they probably do have an effect on people's behavior but quite you know, whether they were adopting all the saucy things that the pornographic and erotic literature was suggesting, we can't prove that. But we do have one interesting um, statistic of the percentage of the population that are marrying. You know, we, ha we can work this out from the overall population statistics and looking at the church records and that is the for baptisms and burials and certainly the 18th century seems to a period when the percentage of people never marrying is going down quite sharply that's partly because of all the movement around that i was talking about people aren't just in their village with a restricted choice of people to marry and when mm -hmm. i say um marrying we don't have statistics for having sex outside marriage but if the portion of proportion of people never marrying is going down then the proportion of people not having sex is going down so it, it is a period you know when well all these young people wandering around all over the place singing bawdy songs and getting bright ideas and uh, when we look at the literature of the pessimists i did say there's a great literature of optimism in the era but there's a lot of people complaining and moaning and one of the things they're really worried about is sexual liberty so there is something going on yeah it's probably there's got to be something to that about the um when there's more young people around about whether uh, society gets a bit more uh sexual i mean you think obviously the i mean the most current example you know the the sexual revolution in the 60s uh with the uh you know right at the time the baby boomers were um becoming you know hitting puberty and coming to a, a you know a, a sexual age um i you know, <laughs> i don't think yeah, it's it, i don't think it's a stretch to say that you know that's uh, you know uh part of the reason the revolution happened is just there was so many friggin kids you know uh or young adults uh, you know at, at, yes at one time. and indeed in, in areas of the world where there's mass emigration mm. and small numbers of population left behind the age of first marriage tends to go up because there's just a smaller pool of people to marry and there's greater 
in marrying you know, within small groups within the same gene pool and you get much greater mm-hmm. advent of gene- genetically linked illnesses and so mm-hmm. forth. So it, 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 the actual mixing from a sort of human genetic point of view, a degree of mixing is, you know, is good for the stock. Right. As it were. May I say, too, in the 18th century, just as in the 1960s, there was an emergent debate as to whether all this was just an aid to men and whether it was men that were getting the most out of it. And the men were certainly enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And just as the same debates in the 1960s. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, so just going back to marriage real quick, um, because this is something that people, when they think of women in this period, that... Um, you know, they sort of had sort of no rights, were considered more, you know, uh, chattel or property. But it's untrue that women or married women were legally treated that way as as chattel or whatever. Uh, a, a married couple uh, was instead seen as or legally deemed to constitute one person, you know, uh, a unit, you know. So yes, so. That, that's right. The The view that they were just chattels like furniture or or indeed like slaves is actually an incorrect reading of the situation. The man and the woman are the marital unit. It is true in many cases, but not in all. We have some examples the other way, but often it was the man that would play that, you know, like the joke, my wife and I are are one and I am he, you know, (laughs) that (laughs) the man takes the role. But in fact, we have some 18th century households which are run by, married women and the husbands are the ones going off sauntering off with the dogs and going off to the races and the the women are doing all the work but it's not just that there were lots of legal um, procedures again the reformers were right to try and tighten things up but in many marriages for example there could be a marriage settlement in which the some of the property and rights were settle on the wife at the time of the marriage and her family would check that that was upheld. And there was, um, what is the other? Well, and there were certainly signs of greater female choice in who they married. They didn't just marry who the family told them to marry. And there's even an example of de facto divorce, though, of course, that could help men as much as women. But women were not just... Um, in servitude in marriage. Although, again, there are lots of examples both ways, and there are some desolating ones. There was one wife who married very young to a a, a powerful politician. He had all the power. And she had an affair, when very young, which didn't last long, and she confessed to her husband, and he divorced her, and forbade her to see her children ever again. And she lived till the age of 95 and never saw them. It was really quite tragic. Mm. So there are some ghastly occasions in it. But then there are some, you know, there's another dashing woman that who who goes through a series of love affairs and marriages, all entirely at her own choice. And it scandalizes everybody, but she's picking up men and throwing them aside and then picking up others. So it's partly... You know, personality and the circumstances. And like all these things, very difficult to get an overall index. But, oh, yes, sorry. The other thing I was going to say about women, not only could they have a premarital settlement, they also went to chancery, which is the court for sort of adjudication. In So the common law might be more restrictive. 
but women say women in business wanting to assert their rights would take a case out in the court of chancery which was known unofficially as the ladies court so you know there were all sorts of ways around it's rather like the 18th century sort of hit and miss invent trial and error bodge here and there yeah. it's, it's not sort of stereotype but i i like this sort of buccaneering tension between order and <laughs> uh, uh, and regulation though ultimately i think and uh, you haven't got on to adam smith but i think there has to be some regulation as well as yeah. uh, free trade great all right well um we've already gone an hour again um so i know like i said i have uh, somewhere to be so i'll i'll end uh i'll end it just by asking the question i ask uh, pretty much everybody that comes on here um you know about the book and that's a uh, what would you what would you like the audience to get out of this book what's say what's the one thing you'd, you'd want a reader to take away from from reading it ah that's so good yes <laughs> i would get out of this the entire culture of trial and error and that does mean try but it also means acknowledge when you have been led maybe the best of intentions into error that was the principle that uh, underpinned the scientific revolution trial and error and technology trial and error but it applies morally politically all the rest but don't stop trying and i think it's a wonderful era of expansion invention optimism and trial and error and it included some major errors but they tried to put them right as well and the same applies to life today all right well great well, uh, before we go, is there uh, anything else uh, you'd like to plug? Uh, any other appearances or websites, social media, anything like that? I have a website associated with this, uh, which is called Georgian Witnesses. It's it's indicated in the book with the, um, the, the call mark, as it were. But there I tried to give examples if you want to read uh, some novels from the period to read or some places to go and visit or you know all, all as many ways i thought of introducing people to the era if it's not known to you and that's really fun to do and people are using it and enjoying it so go and see georgian witnesses all right great well again the book is the georgians the deeds and misdeeds of 18th century britain um really really fun book uh, this uh, these sort of books are sort of right in my wheelhouse uh uh, I, I really like uh, uh, social histories like that, where you're sort of just sort of immersed in uh, in the time period in that world, and you get to sort of uh, uh, stew in it, uh, you know, for three or four hundred pages, uh, depending on the book. But uh, I, I highly recommend it uh, to anyone who's interested in uh, you know that time period or, or or British history or just you know history buffs in general. Um, it's it's a it's a lively read. Uh, like I said, very interesting, uh, a, a very fun read. So, uh, highly recommend it. Make sure you go out there and pick up a copy. And again, the book, The Georgians, The Deeds and Misdeeds of 18th Century Britain, and my guest, uh, Dr. Penelope Corfield. So, Dr. Corfield, again, uh, thank you very, very much for for uh, for humoring me and coming on the podcast and discussing your book with me. I really appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please make sure you leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us in the podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's a T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. 
And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we also have our uh, Twitter account for the uh, for the podcast. You can reach out to us there uh, for more information, or if you have any questions, anything like that, uh, make sure you give us a follow there at uh, what is it at Ill Books at I L L Books. So uh, check us out there. Send us a DM, give us a follow, you know, all that sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, that's pretty much it for this time. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.
For those of you up front who can see, Mickey's got his headset on, and he's talking to the people that are hovering up there. You know the people in the ship, the people in the sky. Mickey has extended conversations with them. Mm-hmm. 